Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science, we'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Let's get started. So welcome to our second live podcast. I'm Dr. Carl Goldcamp. Keto naturopath. You know, today I want to connect things that you probably never thought were connectable. And my recent enjoyment and sort of like ongoing investigation research into genomic mutations, otherwise known as SNPs, and various new conditions that are associated with them. Well, they're not that new. And here's what I'm going to sort of the two unrelated things you may not have thought about. Parkinson's with Post-menopausal weight gain in women, and you could say that in men as well, but men don't go through menopause, so we're going to put them out of that particular uh, category. But what's interesting about that, and there's a lot of directions we can go. All right, let me give it to you straightforward. So women, and let's pretend nobody has a mutational difference. We're all perfect humans, and we're all identical, okay? This will keep the story rather simple and clean. All right, so it goes that you have women and you have men. Boom. They have different chromosomes. One's XX and the other's XY. All right, there you go. We find with women, we don't refine, is that they have about 40 years of elevated estrogen when they go through fertility periods. Someplace mid-teens to average age of menopause is 49. So let's call it 50, right? Okay, so roughly 40 years, 35, 40 years of elevated estrogen. So when you go back over research over the last 10 or 20 years, you come to these, you know, gender differences that come to the obvious conclusion. Maybe this is associated with uh, estrogen. So the difference between men and women in Parkinson's, I'm going to get to in a second, maybe it has to do with estrogen. And so sure enough, and I'm going to bring you current with this, um, and here's, it says, postmenopausal estrogen use affects risk for Parkinson's. That's 2004. And where did it come from? Um, it came from Sydney, uh, Melbourne School of Medicine. So, well, that's interesting. So, should women take estrogen? What the question is, and what is revealed in the subsequent, call it 20 years since this particular study was done, was that it's not so much the estrogen, it's the estrogen that it affects certain enzymes more. 
estrogen affects certain enzymes more. And so there's this one called PEMT, so it's phosphatidylethylamine. Think of ethanol as an alcohol, phosphatidylethylamine methyl transferase. So it's transferring a methyl group. But this PEMT, PEMT we're going to call it, right? So this PEMT enzymes is kind of riddled with a lot of mutations. So now we're introducing mutations. Riddled with a lot of mutations that slows it down. It slows it down to the point of it really not working at all. So I'm going to tell you what that does, but I also want you to keep in your mind there's a gradation of this enzyme isn't working. It's not, it's not going to be responding to estrogen, and why you should care in a second, to it's only partially impaired, so it's moderately slow. So moderately, a little bit slow, moderately slow, to very slow and not working. The whole shebang is there. So there's not just one mutation, but a number of mutations. They've been investigated over the last uh, 20 years, for the most part, even started back in the 80s and 90s about you know, documenting these particular mutations on these particular enzymes and the whole race of getting the human genome down and so on. So you now have, um, let's say there's 10 or 20 of these mutations that in the last 20 years have been kind of compressed down to two or three, maybe four at the outside, with not only PEMT, but a few other enzymes that have to do with estrogen affecting these enzymes. And these enzymes help that person, women we're talking about now, produce choline. So estrogen hits these receptors. In the perfect world, they're all working. So when the estrogen is higher for those 35 to 40 years of fertility for women, they have the ability to just willy-nilly make choline. They need it, they got it. They want it, they got it. They can make it. They can go anywhere and they can, providing they're not starving to death, you know, you can go to the North Pole and you're still making choline regardless of what you're eating for the most part. So, well, that's a pretty neat trick, right? So that allows for women to be mobile anywhere and yet be uh, fertile competent relative to their choline needs, okay? So that's the perfect women. They have this battery pack, if you will, this independent power to produce as much choline as they could possibly want. And obviously there's going to be a greater need for choline should they have babies. And so they're ready for it. They got it. And men don't have that. They don't really have, uh, their testosterone goes up somewhat, their estrogen goes up somewhat, but there's basically no difference in the and uh, so these enzymes, though, do exist with the same sens sensitivity of estrogen in men, they're kind of irrelevant. Okay, so here we go. Now, when we talk about Parkinson's, this was 2004, University of uh, Melbourne Medical School, and there's been subsequent um, studies that confirm this, is that, wow, women postmenopausal that have Parkinson's their symptomology improves with increased estrogen. So it's not increased estrogen, it's increased choline. Right? The increased estrogen caused increased choline in the women that had working enzymes. Right? So in the women that didn't have working enzymes, there wasn't any difference. You know, give them all the estrogen in the world, it's not going to change their symptoms for Parkinson's. So what does Parkinson's have to do with it? Well, Parkinson's, if you were to really boil it down to what is the 
essence of Parkinson's, Parkinson's is a dopamine deficiency. So think of dopamine provides a lot of function. We tend to think of dopamine and addiction. We tend to think of dopamine high. We tend to think of the dopamine drives us to, if you will, if you're a cigarette smoker, that next thing, the next cigarette, the next alcohol, the next, the next sexual encounter, the next whatever it is that gives the next purchase, the next car, the next whatever thing that's exciting. It's the anticipation to go do that thing, right? So often addicts are become dopamine deficient whole different pathway, but dopamine deficient, but they're still after dopamine. They want more dopamine. They want to feel good. And because they've been driven to feel good so often that they're non, um, their non-satisfying moments are of low dopamine. When they don't have that thing, they're at a low dopamine. All right. So dopamine to, to choline, what's the connection? Well, choline has to do with acetylcholine. So when you take in choline, you don't just eat choline. You usually eat choline as phosphatidylcholine. Phosphatidylcholine is in every cell of everything you eat, whether it's vegetable or animal. All right, It's on the cells that you're eating of the, the protein of the blood, of the fat. It's there. So that's where you're getting it. Uh, you tend to get more in animal meats than you do in, in plant matter, but it's there. So, all right, so now you're taking choline and you're making acetylcholine. Acetylcholine, and choline in general, you can say, helps increase the dopamine transporters. So every hormone is transported. Name your hormone, it has a transport, and then it hops off (laughs) at the last moment and becomes the active or the free form. But they need transporters. You need a bus to get to school. When you get to school, you get activated and you go to your classes. Well, if you don't get the bus or get on the bus, or if there isn't any buses, you're never going to get to school. And that's how it is with um, dopamine deficiency. The net result is there's not enough dopamine. But the questions along the way are, is it because there's no buses? There's no dopamine transporters? Hmm, that's an interesting aspect. But anyway, so choline as it becomes manufactured, comes in, it's made into phosphatidylcholine and other, what they call phospholipids for the cells of the, to cover the membranes of all the cells in all our bodies, in, in all our body, all our cells throughout our whole body. Um, and obviously uh, phosphatidylcholine uh, and acetylcholine, the, the dominant neurotransmitter in the brain and in the muscle. And think of this as choline has to do with basically three things. It has to do with brain health, it has to do with muscle health, and it has to do with liver health. And um, actually in the 1870s is when choline was first discovered, isolated. And it was isolated from bile. And so chol, C-H-O-L-E, is the Greek name for bile. So that's where they got the, they got started. So choline came from bile, it's in bile, but it's the phosphatidyl part of bile. It's not all of bile, it's that part. And it's it's actually the, the dominant aspect. Um, we may come back to that point later. We'll see. Okay, so now we have choline. You're taking in acetylcholine because you're eating all these sources and you're chugging away. You're making choline. Life is good. But so women have this advantage of, bam, they are going to have 35 years of great choline making. You know, they they don't have to eat anything. They don't have to worry about their diet relative to choline. They just have to 
make sure they're having enough calories so they stay alive. So they have a big buffer. They have a big alternative source of what they call endogenously, endogenously produced choline. Whereas everybody else, men and others that don't have that ability to have estrogen sensitive to drive the production of choline have to depend on their diet for choline. So they still have the same need for choline for their muscles, acetylcholine, phosphatidylcholine, uh, uh, the membrane for all their um, cells in their body. So they ha still have the need, but they are absolutely 100% dependent on their diet to give them sources of choline. So back to the perfect world, everybody does have, a, have that ability to produce some choline if those, uh, if those enzymes are working. So in that perfect world that we have no uh, mutational problems, even men can produce 30% of what they need daily. But women with working enzymes, they can produce 100% because the enzyme drives these, en it drives PEMT and a few of the other enzymes to upregulate the production. You know, it's like a factory. They're just going to hammer down when they need it. They need it and they got it. Men can't do that, and postmenopausal women can't do that. It's an estrogen driver, okay? So it's an estrogen driver. So in the years of fertility for women, high estrogen, what can they do? They can they have ideally good brains, good muscles, and good liver. These are pretty critical functions in your body, don't you think? So that's amazing. So in what they're now I've told you about all this inter interplay, right? So if you have enough choline, if you have the ability to have enough choline, you will have enough dopamine buses, right? Transporters. And you more than likely either will have a diminished symptomology of Parkinson's or maybe you won't get Parkinson's at all. So what they found and how would you discover adding estrogen, this is 2004, adding estrogen to postmenopausal women that have Parkinson's and that they got better is they didn't know or think enough, certainly the research was there, uh, they didn't know enough to go, maybe it's not so much the estrogen, it's the choline. So these women that benefited from the added estrogen clearly had a choline deficiency, right? So they weren't making as much as they could be making because they were postmenopausal, and their diets for everybody in the United States it is choline deficient. You know, 90% of the population, this is NIH, um, has, what's it? NHANES 2005-2007 or something like that um, came up with a hellaciously high number that we're all choline deficient. So that, that then means we're all choline deficient by diet. So they couldn't measure it in the blood and they still can't measure it in them, but they don't have an easy test to measure it in the blood. But say, hey, here's this population that's choline deficient. They measured that by going through tediously, all right, this is all you eat for the lot you've been eating, this is your diet. You know, they massive amounts of interviews and recording. It's what they call nutritional epidemiology. So they deduced by the diets that they took in, that recorded from all these people, all walks of life, all ages, they said, you know, choline is just coming up short. So that's where they got the, the statement, the claim, the attribute that we're all choline deficient. However, those women that had enough estrogen and had working, that had plenty of estrogen, so premenopausal women, and had those working enzymes, 
They didn't have to worry about being choline deficient. Maybe their diet was, like the rest of the United States, 90% deficient in choline. They didn't care. Couldn't care. Didn't affect them. Postmenopausal will catch up to them, right? Okay, so what I'm saying is that often we think of estrogen, and for, for that matter, relative to women, hormone therapy. Hormone therapy is was initially just estrogen, and it was just, and there's three different types of estrogen, by the way. Um, estrogen sort of balanced or opposed with progesterone. So they're getting the same two hormones that they had through their cycle, you know, in their cycling years, in their, fer- in their fertility years. So that's pretty interesting that they did that. But the hormone replacement therapy, sometimes called HRT, uh, has evolved a little bit. So now they track all three estrogens. And ideally, the estrogen component of hormone therapy is a monthly cycle of these three estrogens changing. So they don't stay in the same, you know, they're not here's all the estrogen, and these are the set ratios, the ratios change. And so now there's enough documentation that they can make a woman cycle again, should that should they she take that much. They could give her a low dose that gives her the benefits of estrogen. And um, But what they're doing, the benefits of estrogen, again, not in every aspect, but in most aspect, is choline. So it's estrogen to choline in some women that have the hormone therapy, because I just told you estrogen was good for postmenopausal Parkinson's. Well, it didn't give them any improvement. What's up with that? It's because they had those mutations. They had those SNPs, single nuclear polymorphisms, that, remember on that scale I said, you had for PEMT primarily, is that you had mutations that affected it a little bit, a little more, a lot, and totally shut it off. So for the women that had these mutations that had that prevented these enzymes having any estrogen sensitivity, they didn't get any benefit from adding it. Give them all the estrogens that they want. You know, it may have other effects, but it certainly isn't going to help their brain, their liver, and their muscle. Hmm. So what do you do with that? Those women. And for that matter, now you can include men because if they can't make their own, even though it's 30%, if they can't make their own little bit of estrogen, they're even more on the hook for, they better know what are the best sources of food to eat to bring in choline. They need to know that. They need to do it. It's like a diabetic uh, with his insulin. I'm using that loosely. You know, clearly, if you're a type 1 diabetic, you need to be very careful to take your insulin with you, right? Type 1. I pay even type 2. But type 1, you can't go, I'm not doing insulin today. Uh, that's not a choice. Because you can't make insulin, you need to bring it with you and have a way of being aware, called monitoring or whatever. We're getting pretty sophisticated now with all the biotechnology. So that's what the population's like today. We are like type 1 diabetics, but for choline. We need to know what foods are good in choline because we need to take our choline sources with us, especially those that have these impaired enzymes due to the mutations. Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay, so now we talked about Parkinson's, we talked about dopamine, and about, remember, getting the buses, it increased the buses. So choline, going to acetylcholine, drove up the 
buses that transported the dopamine to wherever dopamine needed to be made. And so consequently for women, and you could even cross over to men as well, uh, if you give them enough acetylcholine, their dopamine will come up to an extent. Now with Parkinson's, like with anything, the longer you have a particular disease, the more permanent damage will more than likely be made. So some things can be turned on again, surprisingly, after having a condition for so long. Uh, others cannot so much. So in the part of the brain that makes the dopamine substantia nigra, should you need to know, um, it does get impaired. So early menopause versus late menopause, for instance, the earlier you get to it, the better because these receptors are still there and willing to make the dopamine. So let me change dopamine topics. I mentioned addiction before. So therefore, you could, for the same group of people, you could look into this category of addiction. These people, what they're after isn't the the beer or the alcohol or the next uh, addictive thing they need to buy, whatever their addiction is, or the cigarette or the cigar or the crack cocaine or the methadone or the... It's not that. That thing is the thing that thinking about it, and if they get it, it drives up their dopamine. So that's the thing. That's the external thing. The internal thing is they're really just after dopamine. They're after enough dopamine to take the itch away, to take that drive away. Okay, then. So in addiction, what we're really saying then, there's a component of people that are choline-deprived. And because they're choline-deprived, they don't have the dopamine buses. They don't have the dopamine transporters. And so they really need uh, dopamine. They really want the dopamine. Give me my dopamine. And so they are unnecessarily stressed, for lack of a better word, unnecessarily driven to get this thing that they think they need. But what they're after is dopamine and they're more impaired. The reason I go on about this, because this impairment doesn't have to happen. In the perfect world, whether you had these mutations or did not have these mutations, if you had enough choline, and let's just you know, give it even more than enough choline on a regular basis, which is the best sources are egg yolks. You can say eggs in general, because obviously egg yolks come in eggs, but it's the egg yolks and liver. So if everybody had enough every day, this whole differentiation between who has a problem of these mutations and, and not being able to sort of produce enough choline, acetylcholine, uh, phosphatidylcholine endogenously wouldn't exist. We'd all be having a happy, healthier life. So it's these people that have, certainly for women, uh, uh, certainly for women that don't have these, that have impaired enzymes, their high estrogen years isn't going to help them that much. And so what would be some of, let's say they didn't have children, and so their ability to, um, they, they, it really wasn't a, a vital capacity in their way of looking at it to have this choline capacity. But by not having the choline capacity, in other words, having periods of high estrogen for those 35 to 40 years, and having these impaired enzymes other symptomology is there. They are more prone to depression. Again, you're, you're, what you're coming down to is choline is now a separate issue. So since they, they can't, one can't affect the other, choline is a separate issue 
and whether it's elevated estrogen and the inability for that to affect choline production, depression, the, the incidence of depression for fertile women goes up obviously during the estrogen times and it actually disappears during uh, postmenopause when estrogen drops down. So what I want to drive home here in my sort of ad lib extemporaneous way of talking is saying there is a strong connection between estrogen and choline through a number of a number of enzymes and these enzymes vary in the responsiveness to to it and it's easy to fix so how why would it be easy to fix it would be easy to fix because these people have to dial in having a daily amount of choline and now choline is available in so many different ways um, I did a, uh, a video a couple weeks ago on a product that I think is really good. And I don't really go overboard for any product. They're all pretty generic. You know, you have NAC and there's 10 companies that do great NAC. And, you know, whatever one product, fish oil, there's no one definitive <laughs> company that I go to for fish oil. Five or six good ones as long as the fish oil is clean, right? In a good ratio, etc. So this was different because... Uh, this took those phospholipids and they simply made them lipophilic. And lipophilic has been a new technology, new in the last 10 years for the most part. And what that means is they've made whatever this thing is. So you have lipophilic uh, vitamin C, you have lipophilic glutathione, you have lipophilic NAC. And um, so what this means is they're impervious to digestion and they go, they're immediately absorbed through the small intestine and become into your bloodstream and are there useful. So they've now jumped 10 or 15 steps. And so um, what I like about the phosphatidyl and there's a, and the other three different kinds of fats that are made lipophilic, I believe that just like I said, that the longer you have this condition, any condition, the more you probably have caused permanent damage. So I used uh, Parkinson's as an example, and you can use other conditions. And so therefore, I think this is a little more special. The lipophilic aspect to something as common as phosphatidylcholine and its related components is actually pretty phenomenal. It's nothing that you're going to go, oh, I took one and I was great. It's not a, what they call a nootropic. This isn't a, it is a brain food, but it's not meant to affect you that way. Take it for three months and... Um, you know, I took this, it's, and I periodically I test supplements too, so I took this because of the whole choline bent that I'm on and looking into it, I said, oh, well, let's see how this goes. And um, I didn't look too much into it other than it was acknowledged as a, a really good product. So three months later, I realized at the gym I got stronger. So I don't want to make the story about me, but what I'm saying, I realized that the product can make a difference to how useful the choline will be. So whereas egg yolks and liver have to be part of your diet, and you can find other sources of choline, but they are, that's number one and number two. They're, number three is, you know, a far number three. They're not like really close. And so if one isn't going to look into those sources, and I believe you still have to have, I still have my eggs per day and I still have my liver. Um, I give myself a month off and a month on because I love liver too much and you can OD with, oh, not OD, but you can have too much vitamin A and you can have too much copper, which is in liver. So I have to step away and then come back. So if I have an addiction, it's liver. 
Um, and maybe it's for all, all those reasons. So back to the Parkinson's story. Back to the Parkinson's story. For those of you who've been following me on video, and I've done a number of uh, audios on this two podcasts, on this whole methylation thing, you know, there are key areas you look into. So as uh, I'm starting to help general explanations of how to use your genomic analysis report from any one of a number of companies, is that you're really looking at B12, folate, and choline. There's a number of uh, factors, we'll call them, a number of enzymes that have to do with all these things. So, you know, folate comes in and then it has to be methylated, methylfolate. Uh, Methylfolate is now a supplement and it wasn't always a supplement. And that just came out less than 10 years ago. Methylated folate, I think, came out about seven years ago. And... um, by, by Merck, which is a pharmaceutical company, and it sold it to the supplement companies like Thorne and so on and so forth, but it had a patent on it. So that's where that suddenly methylated. So people who had a enzyme problem, like myself, that's where the MTHFR comes in, and there's various forms of that, and the MTRR, and all these other ones in there, that, that, that's about methylation. And if you are one that has a higher need for folate and B12, what you're gonna see in your lab work is elevated homocysteine. So back in the 80s and 90s, actually 70s, 80s and 90s, the work of uh, Kilmer, uh, Kilmer uh, McCulley, Kilmer McCulley, um, I'm mispronouncing his first name. It's a neat name though. Um, and he's the one who was all about homocysteine. And then as that idea matured, and that was relative to heart disease, Idea matured, you realize, well, these are strategic, the things that you need to take to lower your homocysteine because it's a neurotoxin in your blood and it's too high. They are B12, folate, and now it's choline. Choline wasn't ever even part of that. So, for the better part of 50 years of exploring methylation, elevated homocysteine, and it's easy to fix. Well, wait a minute, choline is the third piece of all this. And so it is very interesting how choline affects um, affects methylation. And so this article, one of the articles about Parkinson's was how B12, there's a B12 deficiency in, in Parkinson's. And then it went on, it's like, well, wait a minute. It didn't go so far as to say, hey, they had this genomic mutation. Conventional medicine is not there yet. Uh, there's plenty of research on it, but conventional medicine to go into your talk, doctor and say, hey, do I have these particular mutations? They'll go, uh, who, what? Excuse me? Um, and so B12, when something is treatable by B12, didn't say they had complete resolution, but they got better. That means more than likely this person has a mutation not just around the B12 aspects of methylation, folate methylation, but look a little more deeply with, especially with Parkinson's, it's really about dopamine. How would dopamine be affected by B12? So dopamine's about Parkinson's, give them dopamine, they get better. It has to do with methylation. It has to do with choline. So in that scamper around from postmenopausal women to Parkinson's to choline to dopamine to addiction, I would want you to understand this and believe this. It is worth looking into your genome, and it's easy to do now from under 100 bucks to if you want to go out and have its own company and private and, you know, super, 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 it's a couple thousand dollars. So you choose. Um, I don't think you have to be, depending on what your priorities are.
It's like, I don't care if anybody knows my genes or not. So I, I'm good to having some of my data public. So that means 23andMe and or Ancestry.com to get that raw data. And then you send the raw data off to a number of companies. So anyways, I, I want you to believe that there's a place for understanding that. And you don't have to wait for the next 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years for this to become ironclad truthful. There's enough information out there to look into that. And it helps any number of a number of situations. Uh, certainly helps the whole category of postmenopausal women that have um, a sudden change in menopause. What is that sudden change? The estrogen dropped. What happened? It means they need to have choline because their choline factory closed, right? Their estrogen, high estrogen drove their choline factory. Well, those days are over. Now it's on to their shoulders to get choline and be thinking about it. And that will tr- tremendously change belly flat, Beth change belly fat, more than likely change hot flashes to the extent that they are um, having those, um, and a lot of other things. I'll end there. I hope it's worth listening to. Take care. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcam again for a brief reminder of something I completely forget to do at the end of every episode. You've heard me talk long enough and many different episodes, but what I would love you to do, and many of you have already done this, I just want to reinforce this particular behavior, which is to send me your questions. Send me your questions and anything you have about keto. If there's something that I don't know, I will look it up. And if it's something that intrigues me, I will probably make an episode, uh, a podcast about that particular topic. So what you need to do is to send me your questions at drgoldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. So that's D-R-G-O-L-D-K-A-M-P at K-E-T-O-N-A-T-U-R-O-P-A-T-H.com. Goldcamp at ketonaturopath.com. Feel free to join our Facebook group, which is also ketonaturopath.com. That's been growing lately. You also have to answer a questionnaire should you choose to join. And I don't ask for your email. I ask that you follow our terms. I try to avoid uh, advertising and uh, the obvious interruptions of just a good Facebook group. So hope to see you at one place or other. Please send me your questions and uh, look forward to talking to you and getting to know you. Take care.